Uh, so why don't we pray together? Father, we're, we are grateful. Lord, we do believe that the Word of God is a gift to us. We believe uh, every word that you've recorded for us in the book of Acts is for our edification. And Lord, over this uh, last 20 months, we've had the pleasure of sitting in, typically here, a comfortable environment. Lord, free from distractions, that your Holy Spirit might minister your truth. And Lord, no doubt we've learned a lot of lessons throughout, even things that uh, perhaps weren't lessons by my design, but your Holy Spirit was working in uh, our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that those lessons, those seeds that were planted in each one of our hearts would indeed take up root and bear the fruit that you intended for them to bear. Lord, may, may each one of us be able to run our race even just a little bit better than before we studied this book together. And we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in uh, Acts chapter 28. That's the last chapter that's recorded for us uh, in this particular book. And we've been following now for a number of weeks Paul's journey to Rome. Paul's been on a ship or moving across little bits of land for over 2,000 miles now since he had made his way from Caesarea eventually to Rome. Uh, went a little bit out of the way a few times as storms took him places that they weren't intending to go. But Paul is making his way to Rome, and today, actually, in our study, we're going to see that he actually gets there. And he's going to have the opportunity. It's not recorded for us, but we know this historically. He's going to have the opportunity to stand before the Caesar there in Rome. Where we left off, Paul and 275 of his shipmates, there's 276 total of them, ended up arriving on a particular island. The beginning of the chapter, chapter 28, verse 1, it gives us the name of that island, though they didn't know the name of it initially, and it is the island of Malta. It says we were brought safely through, and we then learned that the island was called Malta. You recall they approached the island from the southeastern side. Uh, most people, the, the average person or a person that was in, in shipping of some sorts, was going to go to the port, which was on the northern side. So they knew this island, particularly the sailors knew this island, but not from the direction of which they had come. We learned that when they got on the island, that a number of the islanders came, found them, and verse 2 tells us that they were especially kind to them, unusually kind to them. They went out of their way. Here's a bunch of people whose ship has just been destroyed. They'd washed up on the shore. Some of them swam in, some of them riding on pieces of the boat. They get there to the island, and the islanders were especially kind to them, except for one, a viper. I don't know if that counts, but a snake came and bit the Apostle Paul. Poor Apostle Paul. I've been through all this stuff, and now I get here. I'm just trying to help, and now i got to get bit by a snake, by a viper, who's no doubt I'm going to shrivel up and die right here in this moment. But remember, Paul didn't die. The Lord preserved him. The Lord protected him. Paul shook off the viper, literally shook it off his hand. He continued to go forward with what it was that the Lord had called for him. And the response of the islanders, I think, is real indicative of where they were in their spiritual journey. And it's not too different from what a lot of people, even in our day and age, think. That clearly Paul was a bad man. If he could escape the sea and then get on the island and immediately get bit by a snake which is going to kill him, of course the gods are against him. 
he must be a bad man. In reality, Paul didn't die, and so what did the islanders do? They changed their view. Strike that. Not a bad man, a god. Uh, he didn't die. He must be a wonderful man. That's what we meant. He must be a wonderful man. And again, the truth for every one of us is somewhere in between that. Uh, we're not wonderful men, and we're certainly not gods. Uh, but not everything bad that happens in our lives is because we are evil. And so Paul would later on have an opportunity to tell the community of this. But that brings us where we left off, where Paul's going to have the opportunity to minister to people on the island. He's off duty. He's on vacation. I'm going on vacation this week. I'm off duty. No niceness to nobody. All right. I'm just going to be there by myself sitting on a beach. Maybe I'll be nice to my family. Uh, but Paul wasn't like that. And it's a lesson for me to learn. Paul wasn't on vacation, and so he didn't just stop ministry. Even though officially he wasn't in a ministry role, if a ministry opportunity came up, Paul took it, and he did it, and he went and he began to serve. And we see that in verse 7. So follow along with me. I'm going to read from verse 7 to 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's some available in a seat kind of in front of you, if you can find one. It says this, verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, a man named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited that man, the, the sick man, and he prayed for him, and he put his hands on him, and he healed him. And when, the, when this had taken place, the rest of the city, I lost my place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came, and they were cured. And they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put, they put on board whatever we might need, whatever we needed. So Luke recounts this interesting story. Luke uses the word, the chief man of the island. Uh, that's actually what this man's title would have been, not just like, you know, the head honcho. That, that was his title provided by the Romans. So this was an official on this island designed to represent uh, the Roman Empire. We have his name. It's, it's listed there as Publius. And he was one of the folks that showed unusual kindness to Paul and to the others. Verse 7 points out that he entertained us for three days. He, he opened up a room in his house or uh, at least at the very least a bed mat in his home for Paul and the others to stay at. Paul and the others are going to stay on this island for three months. But, you know, they had to find a place to live or, or something like that. And so this important official opens up his house to them, treats them honorably, keeps them there for about three days. Uh, and then it tells us when they eventually do leave, notice they gave us everything that we needed. This was a really sweet experience, I suspect, for the Apostle Paul, for Luke, for Aristarchus, and for all the others that were on the ship. After months and months of traveling through uh, the hurricane winds and the storms and eventually their ship breaking up and them having to swim to the land to have this period of respite because these people were showing a kindness to them must have been very, very restorative to each one of them. We have the ability to do that in people's lives just by showing kindness to people and to caring for people and to extending what we have in order to meet their particular needs. Now, in all of this, a ministry opportunity developed for the Apostle Paul. It says in verse 8 that Paul became aware that the father of this chief man, that he lay sick with a fever and with dysentery. There's actually been quite a bit of research into the island of Malta and some of the sicknesses that were prevalent there. 
And there's a name for this particular sickness. Now notice it was a fever. So here's the name that the wise researchers came up with. They call it the Malta fever, uh, is what they came up with. Uh, and what caused it, uh, it was believed, is a disease caused by a microorganism found in the milk of the goats on the island. It was said to cause symptoms that would last four months. That's it. That's awful. I do not want to be sick for four months. All right. And the struggle was with a fever, abdominal pain, cramps. I don't know if you want to know this one. Did everybody eat breakfast already? Bloody diarrhea. Uh, I know. It's terrible. All right. And so that's what that man was dealing with as he lay in bed and the weakness that would come with it. And so again, Paul, not on vacation or on vacation, wasn't on vacation. He sees the man in need. Who's that fellow? That's my dad. Oh my gosh, what's the matter with your dad? He's been sick, real sick, um, for almost four months now sick. Oh my goodness. And so it says there in verse 8, Paul visited him and prayed for him, and he put his hands on him, and he healed him. Now, of course, we know that the apostle Paul uh, wasn't the, the actual one that healed him. God healed the man. But he was working through the Apostle Paul. Because again, we know, unless God was empowering Paul, Paul would have been powerless to help this man at all. It was God that did the work. But it was Paul who made himself available that God would work through him. And that's what God does with every one of our lives. It's God that ultimately is doing the work. It's God that is changing a person's heart. It's God that is healing a person. It's God that's doing what God is doing. But he works through his instruments, you and I. And so as we make ourselves available for him to work through us, he does. And he did so here through the Apostle Paul. Now, this is not the first time that the Apostle Paul was used by God to heal someone. In our study of Acts, we've seen many occasions where the Apostle Paul did. We, we read like just passing verses where it says all day people were brought to the Apostle Paul and he prayed for them and they were healed. And so Paul had exercised this particular gift before. And I can't help but be reminded, as Paul was used on numerous occasions to heal other people, don't forget, Paul himself was a sick man. Paul was a man who struggled with sickness himself. And God was using him to heal other people, even while he himself wasn't healed. Isn't that interesting? And yet, rather than Paul becoming bitter, rather than Paul becoming upset, and you know, why God? Why am I being used to help other people, but you won't do a work within me? And you won't even allow me to pray for myself to be healed, and i got to struggle with this thing. Rather than becoming bitter toward that situation, Paul relinquished himself, resolved himself to what it was that God was trying to do. You remember that the Apostle Paul prayed three times that God would remove whatever it was that sickness was. He calls it, metaphorically, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. It says this, now, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. He prayed that God would remove that thorn in the flesh. The, ver the passage continues, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. And Paul said, therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul said, I've learned things about the grace of God. I've learned things about the strength of God. 
I've discovered things about when I am at my weakest point, how God can still work despite that. And he said, you know, I wouldn't trade that. I'd rather have that than be perfectly healthy or without whatever the difficulty was. And so Paul here, with this ability to pray for others that they might be healed by laying on of his hands as God worked through him, rather than growing bitter toward others, he continued to make himself available to others. And God blessed those others as a result, and no doubt the Apostle Paul. We have another point. Look at verse 9. It says, Now when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases, Malta fever or whatever, they also came and they were cured. Now in light of verse 8, we're tempted to conclude that the rest of the folks on the island came to Paul, Paul prayed for them, and they were healed, just like that first guy was. But there's an interesting thing that, is, is, uh, that takes place here. You'll probably notice even in your English version, in verse 8, the word that is used in a lot of versions, not everyone, is the word healed. In verse 9, the word that is used is the word cured. And, there's a, and not everyone does that. Uh, some versions translate verse 9 also as, ver, as healed as well. But they're two different Greek words in the original language. And so the word that is used in the original Greek that is translated in many of our English language as cure or cured is the word that we get the word therapeutic from. It's therapeo. That's the word in verse 9. Back in verse 8, the word that is used, I'm going to do my best with this one, it's e-a-o-mai. E-I-E-I-O. It's, e, it's e-i-o-mai, uh, and that's translated healed. So there's two different words, okay? There's e-i-o-mai, and there's therapeo. There's the word which is translated healed. There's the word that is translated cured. This word eiomai, when used in our Bibles, it refers to a healing which comes about as a result of the miraculous. This word therapeo, when it is used in our Bibles, it refers to uh, a healing which comes about as a result of receiving medical attention. You see the, the big distinction there? And we know that Luke, who was traveling with Paul, by profession was a medical doctor. Luke was almost certainly a slave, uh, in that day, a person would uh, educa- have their slave educated, or some people would have certain slaves educated, that they would become their personal physician. Luke was one of those individuals. He was a medical doctor. And so where it says in verse 9 that they came, uh, and people, the, all the people from the island came with their various diseases, and they were cured, almost certainly they came to Luke. And Luke performed what today we might call medical missions. Maybe some of them were prayed and uh, or were healed in prayers by the Apostle Paul like the first guy was. But we have a distinction that is taking place here. And I think it's important for us to see. Because on the extremes, there will be some, even within the church or within the church, uh, capital C, the big church, that will say, you know what, I'm just going to trust God. And I'm going to pray for healing. And I'll never go see a doctor. And then there will be others that will say, well, I'm just going to go to a doctor, and I don't believe that God heals anymore like he used to do. We have an example here where God is doing a miraculous healing, and he is working through the medical doctors. And I think it's important to understand, both of us, uh, that both God works through both means in our lives. Amen? You with me on that? Pretty simple thing for us to consider there. Continuing on to verse 11, it says, Now after three months we set sail in a ship, 
that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. And putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and he took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So they stayed on Malta for three months waiting for winter to pass. Remember, winter was a tough time to be sailing, but they found themselves out in the middle of the sea during winter, just hoping to get somewhere. Well, they did. They got to Malta, and they stayed there. They waited there for three months. Of course, we know from the previous chapter, their ship was destroyed, so now they need to find a new ship. They do that. It tells us there in verse 11, they find a new ship from Alexandria, northern Africa, that was making its way uh, up to Rome, and so they hop aboard that ship. They go from Malta, it tells us in uh, verse, I guess it's 12, they go from Malta to Syracuse. I think we have a map. Um, Malta is the red one. Syracuse, if I can see correctly, is the black one. The big circle, that's Rome. That's where they're trying to get. You remember when we were studying a few chapters back and Paul was leaving Ephesus? Uh, and heading back to Jerusalem, how he stopped at every one of those ports. That's what these ships did. They were like, it was like bus stops. They stopped at every one along the way, ultimately making their way to Rome. And so we read about Syracuse. Syracuse was the capital of Sicily, uh, which is the way I learned it. It's the little soccer ball at the edge of the, the boot of Italy. Uh, that's Sicily there. Uh, I guess you guys didn't learn that at Incarnation School like I did, but that's how they taught us. Uh, they stayed there, tough crowd, they stayed there for three days. Shortly thereafter, they, they went further north, as that map previously showed. They went to a town called Regium. A day after that, they went to the town of Puteoli. They're still about 150 miles south of Rome. It doesn't look like that on the map that I just showed you, but that's how far away they continue to be. They've traveled now about 2,000 miles over a period of about six months as they left Caesarea and now they spent some time on different islands and now they're, they're getting closer and closer to Rome. They've traveled about 2,000 miles. Verse 14 tells us they stayed in that town of Puteoli. They stayed there for seven days. So they have some time. They're going to be there for a little while, seven days as it says. And we've seen examples of this before. What does Paul do with that free time? Well, verse, the next verse is going to tell us he seeks out fellowship. It says, we went and found brothers. The word found there is searched for, like a scavenger hunt. We looked for brothers. They were in this little town. They went to find other believers that they could enjoy fellowship with, friendship with. Fellowship was extremely important to the Apostle Paul. And if it was extremely important to him, I think it should be extremely important to every one of us as well that are trying to walk with the Lord, that are trying to run this race. And sometimes fellowship comes to us. Many times we have to seek it. And Paul sought after fellowship. Not just, great, you know, like, oh, nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you. But he sought to enter into relationship with these people. I'd encourage you, make sure you're doing that in your walk with the Lord. 
and you can have some acquaintances here on Sunday morning, but you're probably not going to be entering into fellowship with those acquaintances. You have to work toward fellowship. Join a small group. Get yourself into an environment where you can know people by name. You can know their story. You can enter into whatever it is that they're going through, and they can enter in with whatever it is you're going through. And then you're beginning to discover what the Apostle Paul was seeking after. It's key to us. You remember in the beginning of the book of Acts, we, we studied that particular verse, Acts chapter 2, and it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to some other stuff, and to fellowship. I could do the whole thing if I really worked it out. Uh, but they devoted themselves to fellowship. Make sure you're doing that. It continues in verse 14. This is sort of an understatement. And so we came to Rome. Almost like none of that other stuff over the last six months happened to them. But it says, and so we came to Rome. Paul had been desiring to get to Rome for a decade or more. We know that from the different things that we read uh, in our study of the New Testament. You remember when he wrote a book to the Romans. This was about 10 years earlier, around 54 or so uh, AD. He said this to the Romans. He said, without ceasing, I make mention of you. He's talking about his prayer life. Without ceasing, I pray for you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, he says. Ten years he had been desiring to get to this city. In Acts chapter 19, we learned that he told the Ephesians that he had to go to the city of Jerusalem, and then he had to get to Rome, or he was hoping to get to Rome. It says there, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so he had this great desire. Not only did he have a great desire to go there, God promised him that he would go there on multiple occasions. We saw this in Acts chapter 23. It said, the following night, the Lord stood by me. This is when he was in jail in Jerusalem. The Lord stood by me. Take courage for you as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify in Rome. We learned how when he was aboard that ship that seemed as if it was going down. How an angel came and ministered to the apostle and told him, you must stand trial before Caesar. Caesar's in Rome. And so Paul, his own personal desire was to get to Rome, and the promises that he felt that God had given him were that he would get to Rome. And from experience, I suspect that many of us have a good idea of what Paul might have been feeling when he finally got to Rome. I suspect that the feeling was, among other feelings, a sense of relief. And here's what I mean by that. This place had been a place that he had longed for for many years. He had longed to come here, not to sightsee. I'd like to get to Rome someday and do some sightseeing. Paul, that wasn't Paul's desire. Paul's desire was to get to Rome to minister to the gospel to those who had yet come to believe and to teach and to ground those who had. And so he had longed to go to come here. We sense, and uh, I think it's pretty clear, that God had birthed within him or planted within him a desire to get to that particular city. Additionally, Paul had the promise of God that he would get to that particular city. And yet, again and again and again, he found himself facing circumstances 
that sure seemed to threaten the fulfillment of that promise. And here's the connection that I'd like to make and where I think many of us can say, you know what, I've been here. Because Paul might have begun to wonder again and again things like this. Did I really hear from God that I would get to Rome? Did God really put this desire in me to get there? Or is it just me kind of putting a spiritual spin on things? Maybe Paul thought something like this. I really thought this was what God was doing. But here we are 10 years later and Rome's nowhere near. Here I am on this ship and it's about to go down. But now, here in Acts chapter 28, where it just simply says, and so we came to Rome, here Paul is in Rome. And I said earlier, I suspect that he had a sense of relief. Because as he stood there at that port, he could say to himself, I'm not crazy. I wasn't just imagining things. I really was hearing the Lord all along. And that relief must have flood over him. It must have just sort of enveloped him with a sense of, God, you are leading me and guiding me and directing me. I don't know if you've ever had circumstances like that, but I, I have. And it means so much to realize I'm not a nut. <laughs> the Lord really does minister to my heart his truth. And I don't have all the answers, but I can get a sense of where he's directing. Take a deep breath and say, all right, Lord, What's next? And move forward. And that's what Paul's going to do. We saw earlier in verse 14 that Paul sought out fellowship. Remember, that was in the, the city of Puteoli. Here in verse 15, what we're going to see is others are seeking Paul out for fellowship. That's pretty cool. Verse 15 points out that the brothers, now that refers to fellow Christians, others heard that Paul and the others were in Rome, and it says they came as far away as the form of Appius or Apius, and another town called Three, Ta uh, Three Taverns. Don't go there. Not a good place to go. <laughs> Italian cities. They were approximately 43 miles away in one direction, 33 miles away in another direction. These guys traveled 43 miles and 33 miles because they heard that Paul was in Rome and they came there to meet him, to see him, to welcome him. They went way out of their way to do so. We know that a typical uh, journey, if you were moving, was about 25 miles in a day. And so these guys traveled overnight to go see the Apostle Paul. Notice what it says. Notice the impact that it had on the Apostle Paul. It said, as he saw them, on seeing them, verse 15, Paul thanked God and he took, and he took courage, or he was encouraged. The word that is used there when it says they came out to us or they came uh, as far as uh, such and such, it's a word which would describe when an official was about to come into town, all of the town would, or whoever, they would go outside of the city beyond the walls, they would wait for that guy, celebrate that guy, and then they would parade that guy back in. That's what's described, how it's describing how they came out to see Paul. They went to the port, if you will, and they celebrated him and his presence. Notice the effect that it has on Paul. It says, Paul thanked God and he took courage. It was an encouragement to them. The sight of them on seeing them was an encouragement to the Apostle Paul. I think a lesson for us, he's the Apostle Paul. He doesn't need any of us, right? We need him. 
No, Paul needed them too. And we all need to remember just how important our encouragement can be to other people when it's in our power to give it. And I'd encourage you, think of ways that you can encourage others. You remember the impact that Barnabas had on Paul early on in his walk? Barnabas' nickname was the son of encouragement. Nobody else liked Paul. Everybody else was afraid of Paul. Barnabas came alongside and said, this guy's a brother, and he's with me. He was an encourager. Their presence drove Paul to prayer. It says there that he thanked God and encouraged him. I'd encourage you, look for ways to be an encouragement to others. Verse 16 continues, Now when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Remember, Paul's a prisoner. That's why he's aboard this ship. And now he gets to Rome. He's going to stand trial before Caesar. And so while he's waiting for the Caesar's schedule to free up, he's in prison. Now, it's not a typical prison. It's more like house arrest. But it tells, if you look down at verse 30 there, we learn that he was able to rent his own house. So that's not bad. You know, you get a nice little house there uh, in Rome. Uh, and that's where he's at. But it tells us that a, there was a soldier who guarded him. In, in actuality, there was a whole bunch of soldiers that rotated in to guard him, probably chained to him as well as Paul uh, was there under house arrest. We'll see. He did some preaching there. He did some teaching there. We know that he did some writing there uh, as well. In the city of Rome, we have what are called the prison epistles that were written during this time, the books of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and the book of Philemon were all written during this time. And so he's not wasting time as he is sitting there. Also, notice in uh, verse 16 where it says, with the soldier or soldiers who guarded him. This is what Paul wrote in one of those prison epistles, the book of Philippians. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That means people are getting saved. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard he mentions are those soldiers in verse 16. And so while Paul sat there, often chained to a Roman guard or the Roman guard that rotated in to be with him, what did Paul do? He used that time to tell each guard about Jesus. I picture it something like this. The guard said, so, what are you in for? And Paul's saying, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Let me tell you my story. Many, many years ago, I was on my way to Damascus, and he just told every one of, their, uh, every one of them their stories. He had a constant supply of people coming in to talk to, and he took advantage of it. You know, sometimes when I, I read through the book of Acts, and I look at the Apostle Paul, I think to myself, how is it that Paul was so effective in ministry? And surely he was gifted and all of those things. But one of the things that I am learning from my study of the book of Acts, just for myself, at least part of the reason for his effectiveness is that he took every single opportunity to tell other people about Jesus. And so just luck of the odds, uh, he's going to be effective because he's doing it more than I'm doing it. Um, here. And so when he was standing before an angry mob, what did he do? He told him about Jesus. 
when he, made, uh, when he was made to stand trial before various Roman officials, Roman governors, what did he do? He told those people about Jesus. When he was aboard a ship that looked like it was about to go down, he gathered everybody together and he told them about Jesus. And when he was wintering on a certain island, the island of Malta, he ministered to the people's needs and he told them about Jesus. Why was Paul so effective? Perhaps it was just simply because he took every opportunity. And maybe if you and I followed that example a little bit more, we would see a similar effectiveness in our lives as well. I have to imagine we would. Acts 28 goes on. Look at uh, verse 17. It says, Now after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me free, but because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, <coughs> I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore... I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now remember, this I've been calling this kind of in quotations, Paul's fourth missionary journey. We have three recorded missionary journeys in the book. And kind of kiddingly, I've been calling this the fourth missionary journey. It wasn't. He was aboard a ship to go stand trial, so he was a prisoner. But Paul turned it into a missionary journey. And what did Paul do in every city that he came to when he was a missionary? First thing he did, found the local Jews so that he could go and he could talk to them. Remember, Paul was a Jew by birth. And so he found the Jews of that particular community. That's what he does here, verse 17. After three days there in Rome, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. The only difference here from some of the other examples in Acts, Paul went to them in the other examples. Here he couldn't go to them, but he invited them to come to him because he had a great love for the Jewish people. If he could just reason with them, surely they would understand and they would come to see that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the hope of Israel. That's what happened in his life and that was his desire would happen in their lives as well. So he, got, he gathers these people up, we see that in verse 17, and he begins his message. He wants them to know a few things initially, sort of an intro. The first thing is found there in verse 17, halfway through, is that he had not forsaken Israel. I'm not anti-Israel at all, he said to them. He says, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. That's the first thing. I'm not anti-Israel. The second thing, or Jew, the second thing he wanted them to know is how he had actually been cleared of all charges against him. He says, when they had examined me, verse uh, 18, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for me to be put to death. Third thing he wants them to know, he, had, he felt compelled to uh, appeal to Caesar. We spent our time looking at that, that he was getting the runaround. And I, I should have been let go a long time ago, but that's why I'm here right now. And then fourthly and finally, down in verse 19, he said, look, I don't have anything against the Jews, even those that did what they did to me. I don't have anything against them. I have no countersuit against them. I didn't bring any argument against them. Uh, about my nation, anything like that. So Paul begins 
by sort of laying a groundwork. Nothing between you and I. I'm not mad at anybody, even though I've been treated the way I have, and so on. Then he shifts, and he begins to talk about Jesus. We see that in verse 20. He says, uh, For this reason I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. The hope of Israel. The hope of Israel refers to the fulfillment of all of God's promises to the Jewish people. We sang that one song uh, about God's faithfulness today. All those promises that God made to Israel, the greatest of which, I think we would all agree, is the promise of a coming Messiah. Paul said, I'm in these chains because of my belief in the hope of Israel. That that which God said he would do, he did. He sent forth a Messiah, and that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. God fulfilled his promises, and he sent a Savior to, the pe- to his people And that's why I'm in jail, because I believe in that. Verse 21 goes on. He says to them, they they say to him, we haven't received any letters from Judea about you. So it seems Paul anticipated that they would know who he was, that they got some letters that were, you know, stilted in one direction, that they got letters about him, bad man, you're not going to like him, he's a terrible guy. And so it seems like he anticipated that with those first couple of things I just pointed out to you there. In reality, they say, we haven't received any letters about you. We don't really even know who you are and why you're here and why I'm here in front of you. Uh, But all I know is you invited me to come, and so I came. Now, they do say this. Now, we have heard about Christianity. They call it this sect. Remember, the Christian faith was a sect of the Jewish faith. We have heard about that, and all we've heard about that, we don't see much of it around here, all we've heard about it is nobody likes it. And we'd love to hear from you about it, if you would be willing to share it with us. Do you think Paul is going to be willing? Yes, I think he will. I'm sure Paul was delighted uh, for the opportunity. Pretty cool group of people that are there before Paul, because they had heard things, but they weren't willing to believe things unless they had an opportunity to investigate themselves. And I think that's pretty admirable. And so they say to him, why don't you share with us what it is you believe, what this sect believes, and we'll form our own opinion. We won't just listen to what everybody tells us to believe. Verse 28 goes on. We're going to get through this, folks. Verse 28 says, now when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. Look at that, even more. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, he taught them, explained to them the word of God, testifying to them of the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, that statement being, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn that I might heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will listen. Let's break that down a little bit. Paul What a great day of ministry. It says there 
that they came in greater numbers than just the leaders. So they gathered up lots of Jews that came and gathered to hear the Apostle Paul explain the Christian faith to them. It says that they remained there in verse 23 from morning until evening. And that Paul taught them first, he testified to them of the kingdom of God. I think that refers to the teachings of Jesus. You remember when John the Baptist came on the scene, there's one that's going to come after me, and he proclaimed, John did, that the kingdom of God is at hand. You remember when Jesus began his public ministry, he spoke of and he taught about the kingdom of God, which is at hand. And so I think what it's referring to here are the teachings of Jesus. The next thing that he does there is he explains to them that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah from uh, the writings of Moses and the prophets. And so when it talks about uh, the law of Moses and the prophets, that's referring to what we call the Old Testament. And so from the Old Testament, he began to open it up and explain how God predicted that a Messiah would come and how Jesus fulfilled that exactly. He did this all day with these here. Notice verse 24. Some were convinced, but others, it says, disbelieved or refused to believe or didn't believe. This should be an encouragement to you because Paul was probably the best Bible teacher out there, right? Would we agree that he's in the running for best Bible teacher? Uh, and even the Apostle Paul wasn't able to convince everyone. And so if you're ministering to people, you're sharing with people, you're trying to point people to the Scripture, and some accept, but others disbelieve, you're in good company. Right? Yours is not the job to convince everyone. Yours is to put the information out there and let God do the convincing. And so here is the Apostle Paul doing that ministry. Verse 25, uh, we learned that there were some that disbelieved, and Paul knew exactly why they disbelieved, because the Old Testament talked about that as well. He quotes, as we have here, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. You can go back and you can look at that at another time. But there it pointed out that the hardness of heart, there would be people that I don't want to believe. It all makes sense. You're making a great argument. I'm not interested. How could you not be interested? Because I'm not. I want to do what I want to do, and I want to continue to go in the direction that I have been going. And Paul says that there was a, or Isaiah said it first, Paul quotes it, there was a hardness of heart, refusing to see, unable to hear. And you remember, Paul encountered this problem again and again in the book of Acts, and what he would do, he'd lay it all out there for the Jews that they might believe. But when it became evident that like nobody else is interested, he would then turn to the Gentiles, and he would tell them that they would. And that's what verse 28 says, Therefore, let it be known to you, that this salvation of God, which some of them sitting in Paul's presence said, nope, not interested, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. If you've uh, read through the Gospels, you may have come across Jesus' parable of the wedding feast. You can look it up again. It's Matthew chapter 22. A person was throwing a big feast. He invited all these people. Some said, eh, not interested. Got other things going on. He said, oh my gosh. I got 200 seats. Food is sitting there. Go find some other people. They went out, other people. Some said, I'm ah, not interested, not interested. Eventually, they went out and they found kind of the beggars of society. Hey, you want a free meal today? You betcha. Where do I got to be? Right over here. Come. And they came. This, 
what Paul's talking about, that's the parable of the wedding feast. Matthew chapter 22. You can read it on your own. It'll be a fun little study during the week. Verse 30 continues. He lived there where? In Rome. Good job. You're still with me. He lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense. How did he do that? He probably made tents or something. People brought him material. He got a little job. He made some money. Two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Two more years he spent in jail there in the city of Rome. Remember, he spent two years in Caesarea in jail. So we're, we're getting close to four and a half years in basically captivity. And I'm really glad Paul didn't just say, man, when I get out of prison, I'm going to start ministering again. He ministered all along the way because who knows how long he was going to be in prison. For Paul, this was not wasted time at all. I told you earlier, not only did he teach people that came to him, he wrote books. I'm really glad he did because I really like the book of Ephesians. And I really like, I love the book of Philemon, this small little book. I think it's such a cool little book there. I like the book of Colossians and Philippians, those books that he wrote while he sat there in that prison. Look at what verse 30 also says, that it says he welcomed all who came to him. We know one guy in particular that came to him. It was a runaway slave, a guy by the name of Philemon. I love that book. I told you that. Uh, And you can read it. It's one chapter long. It's not very long. But here's a guy that ran away from his owner, found himself in Rome, somehow got saved there in Rome, came into contact with this apostle, the apostle Paul, and Paul was able to counsel him about next steps in life, what he needs to do. Where are you from? I forget, but I love the book that much. I forget where the guy's from. He says, where are you from? He said, I'm from such and such a place. He said, really, I know a guy that lives there. Oh, yeah, what's his name? His name is Onesimus. Uh Uh-oh. Because Onesimus was the owner that he ran away from, who was also a believer. And Paul says, I'll write a letter for you. This will be fun. All right. And it's a great, read the book. Maybe we'll do that sometime soon. All right. Here, that happened here in Paul's captivity. Paul stays there for two years. Now, we have no record in our Bibles of what happened to the apostle uh, after where it ends. Um, we do know some things historically. We do know that Paul eventually had his appearance before Caesar. You may not know a lot of Caesar's names. You probably heard this one, Caesar Nero or Nero. Uh, would go on to be a brutal, barbaric dictator. At this point in his administration, he wasn't such a person. And Paul came before him, had his trial, I'm sure, like Paul did in every other circumstance, he shared the gospel with Nero. Uh, Nero, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like responded to that uh, presentation, but he did declare the apostle Paul innocent. And so after two years there in Rome, Paul had his trial, he was released, and he went on his way. Tradition tells us that Paul went on a true fourth missionary journey, that he went from Rome to uh, the nation of Spain, you know, where that is in the world today. Some have even speculated, uh, but there's not as much evidence. Spain is pretty certain. There's not much much evidence that he went all the way up to Britain, uh, what we call England and all that today, uh, where the Romans uh, existed there as well. And he ministered in those two particular locations. Eventually, we know that the Apostle Paul was arrested again 
this is likely in conjunction with Nero's change, uh, where he went from being a pretty nice guy to a lunatic uh, of a leader. Uh, and Paul was arrested again. Uh, this time, it was a rather difficult experience for the Apostle Paul. He writes about it in the last of all the books that he wrote that we have recorded is the book of 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, we learn it was a much more difficult experience. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, it says, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. He says, but the word of God is not bound. That's different from some of his experiences earlier. A little bit later, we learn all of his friends deserted him during this second imprisonment. It says in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. The only one with me is Luke, he says. And then a little bit after that, he reveals that he knew the time was short and that he was soon going to die. He says, Ooh. he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only to me, he says, but to all who love is appearing. And so Paul knew that his time was short. According to tradition, Paul was ultimately beheaded by the Caesar uh, somewhere around the year 67 AD. Uh, yeah, AD, and he was killed. Is that a sad thing? A little bit. I feel bad for the guy. I'm sure he would have liked to have gone a different way. But he was beheaded and he died. Now, the book of Acts kind of ends weird. Like, I would like a bow. And then everything, happily ever after, and this, or Paul died, and, but they had a big ceremony. It was nice. You know, we had cookies after. You know, it just, it just sort of ends. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why is it ending? What's going on? I think it ends that way for a very practical reason. The practical reason is probably the whole purpose of the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Remember, Luke wrote both of those. Probably the whole purpose of them was to present as sort of evidence before this trial with Caesar. And so here's this guy here. You want to know about Christianity? Here's the story of Christianity. Here's how Paul got involved in that. This is what Paul did. This is how he got arrested. This is how he eventually made his way here to Rome. That's the end of the story, right? That, that's what the Caesar wanted to know. How, who's this guy that's standing before me? And so some people speculate that's why Luke actually wrote this material, and that's why it stops where it does. Maybe that is the case. I think God is also at work in it ending where it chooses to end, and it, it kind of ends without an ending because the story of the book of Acts, the history of the church, it continues. It doesn't end when Paul dies. It doesn't end when Peter dies. It doesn't end when James dies. It continues. And so we, the church, we continue to trust in the Lord. We continue to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We continue to look to God for the guidance of the Father. The word of God continues to spread without hindrance as it did in our study of the book of Acts. And it continues to change lives for the glory of God. The book of Acts isn't over. It continues. And so here we are 2,000 years later, 
were thousands and thousands of miles away from where these things originated, and we are a part of that life-changing account. The task that was Peter's, the task that was John's, the task that was James's, the task that was Philip's, the task that was Paul's, the task that was Lydia, all these people that we've met in our study of the book of Acts, their task is now our task. We are, as Mark 16 says, to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. That hasn't ceased now that Acts is over. The task is now ours, to make disciples of all nations, as Matthew chapter 28 tells us. And so, friends, as we come to the end of our book of study, this wasn't a study for us to learn some interesting things. Maybe we'll get on a Bible trivia show or play a trivia game at you know, one of the next fellowship groups, and we'll be able to win because we learned some things about the book of Acts. We've learned some things that we might go forth. And so the same commissioning that took place in Acts chapter 1-8 is our commissioning. You remember Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Amen? That's our commissioning. Our Jerusalem, Mercer County, Bucks County. Or Judea and Samaria, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, some of the surrounding states. The uttermost parts of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth as we go forth. And so let's commit ourselves afresh. God chooses to work through his people. You and me and us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I feel like you could have picked a lot better people than us any of us that make up the capital C church. I think your angels probably could have accomplished it more effectively. And yet, you have made it very clear that it is through the redeemed that the message will go forth. And so, Lord, you bought us. You've paid the price, the penalty for our sin. You went to the cross. There was no other way. You poured out your blood. The righteous one took upon himself the iniquity of humanity so that the sinful ones might take upon themselves the righteousness of deity. And then you send us forth with an invitation to others to be washed and cleansed even as we were. So, Lord, it is our desire to be used by you, and I pray that our study of Acts will contribute to our more effectively doing that. Bless your word, anoint it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.